0: Let's get started. And the next thing in the list is called STEP, S-T-E-P. And this is a really, really neat little application. It's a physics simulator. It's probably within the KEDU um, program set. I I didn't actually check to see sort of how it was classified on their website. But uh, when you open it up, there's a big canvas in the center of the of the window, and then there's a toolbar or a palette on the left, and some property panels on the right. The palette contains things like, well, your normal pointer, uh, and then it's got particle and charged particle, disk, box, polygon, spring, linear motor, circular motor, gas, soft body, weight force, gravitational force, coulomb force, anchor, pin note, meter, tracer, graph, and controller. I guess I just decided to read them all. Um, and the idea of this little application is that you can throw objects into your canvas and then start a simulation and th- things might happen. So here's, here's a, a simple use case, I guess, or actually more of a, a tutorial or a demo, I guess. Um, but there's one called disk. So if you just drag and or no, you click on disk to activate that as the, the tool, and then you click the left button to position the center of the disk. So I'm just going to put it pretty much anywhere on the canvas, easy. And then I'm going to press disk again, and click again. So now I've got two disks on my canvas. And just to help me differentiate them, I'm going to click on one of them. I'll do the top one. And over in the right, there's, a, there's, like I said, property panels. There's one called properties. I mean, there's lots of different panels. But there's one literally called properties. And uh, there's a name of the disk. So this is disk one, because it's the first one that I added. They don't start at zero. They start at one color is a little black color swatch now for whatever reason you can't you can't change the color from the swatch you just have to give it a hex value and weirdly it starts off with ff which um i'm assuming maybe i I didn't actually mess around with that um i was kind of assuming maybe that's maybe that's the alpha channel um so yeah I'm, i'm not too sure what the the leading ffs are I guess I could just switch it to zero and see what happens. Does that change anything? No, it doesn't change anything. Yeah, I don't know what those, oh, it wouldn't let me do that, okay. Well, anyway, so ignore the two first Fs, but then I got zero, zero. So I'll do, um, I'll just do DD and then zero, zero. So I'll change that to one, one, I don't know, one, one. Okay, so now I've got a pretty, pretty red-ish disc up at the top and I've got a black disc at the bottom. So that's, at least I can tell them apart. Okay, next step is going to be to find a, a spring. And that is in the, the palette over here on the left. There's one item called spring. And it tells you, once again, press the left button to position the first end of the spring, and then drag and release to the position of the second. So I'm going to just click on the red disc, and clicking and dragging all the way down to the black disc until it's highlighted, and then release. And now I've got like these, I've got this red disc, and a black disc, and they're connected. They're tethered together with this sort of green squiggly line that's meant to represent a... A string so that right not a, str- a string a spring like a um like a you know a, a spring uh so a coil so i'm going to then i'm going to pull the red and the black discs really as far apart as i can kind of you know i'm really making that spring kind of taut so it's not so much of a squiggle now it's more it's, a, it's practically a straight line so I've just created two objects in space, and I have created tension between the two. So there's a lot of potential energy uh, that's going to happen here, assuming that the spring is stronger than the you know the objects and so on. So I'm going to just press up in the top toolbar simulate. And sure enough, they spring together. The, the spring sort of recoils, drawing the two discs together. Not not quite as forcefully as I'd have thought, to be honest. Uh, but here they are, just kind of wobbling back and forth towards one another and away from, an an- from one another. Now I'm going to press the stop button. Now Could I could I pull it tighter, maybe? Yeah, it looks like I can. Alright, so I'm really stretching this spring now, and now I'm going to click Simulate. And it happens a lot quicker. They even knock into each other. And because they've knocked into each other, they are, yeah, they're rotating a little bit. Because, you know, when they knock into each other, they're slightly off-center, depending on, I don't know, physics. They're not actually moving around as much as I would have thought. I guess they're, I guess they're interestingly, this is bizarrely well-aligned. I don't know how I did that. So they're just going back and forth. Okay, you get the idea. So, okay. So that that's that. So what if I then... Uh, well, actually, here's... So I could click Gravitational Force. And then it says, Click on the scene to create a gravitational force. Okay. So I'll click on this canvas, and it's, it tells me, okay, gravitational force now exists. Now, once again... Um, over in the right hand side of the the window there's these property palettes uh, property panels and so i can look i can look at all the elements in my world i've got a disk a disk and a spring and that gravitational force if i click on that force then i get to define the value of the force so i don't know what any of these this math means so i'm not going to mess with it but it, it does it gives you a formula there of the gravitational force and you could adjust it presumably i don't like i say, i'm not really sure maybe i could maybe just why not it's 6.674 e minus some stuff so i'm gonna i'm gonna knock it down to 2.674 e and just see what happens and i'm gonna hit simulate and Nothing happened. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have adjusted the gravitational force. I I can't see any sign that there's gravity in this world. So I'm gonna knock it back up to six and then click simulate. Interesting, still nothing really. Okay, so what I maybe need is a weight force. Now does that go onto, that goes onto the scene, okay. So now I've clicked, uh, now I've created a weight force and now if I simulate, everything falls off the screen. <laughs> there it goes. Yeah, okay, so that's what it needed, I guess. Gra- weight and gravity. Uh, now could I decrease the gravity? dude, four, 4.674. Nervous about making it too. Uh, still everything falls off. So the one weird thing about this is that I can't figure out sort of how to reset the, the scene. So if you do something like you add gravity and weight, and then all of your elements fall off your screen, as far as I know, I, I don't know how to get them back. Um, I would love it if there was like a reset button. But like I say, I... I I have not been able to find that functionality. So I just hit undo. That's what I've been doing. Um, and I guess you could save it and then reload it maybe. That would be another one. But I mean, it would be kind of nice if it was just like, okay, this is this is my setup, bring me back to that every time. But it, it doesn't seem to do that. All right, so the weight force is set to like 9.87. So I'm gonna just knock that down a little bit. And again, I don't know any of this math, so I don't actually know what I'm doing. That sort of seemed to work, but not really. Ultimately, it still fell. It just kind of, it seemed to delay the, the descent a little bit, the, the initial descent. Um, either way, you're probably sort of getting the idea. The point is that this is a sandbox. Okay, there, so there's a, there there is a pin element, which you can click. And then you can, for instance, I'm going to click my red disc. And so actually, that was a poor choice, because I think the pin looks red. Um, but anyway, I know that I've pinned the red disc now. So now if I hit simulate, oh, it didn't what i thought yeah okay so that red disc um is sort of well it's pinned to to where it is on the board so even though so the 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 black disc on a spring is falling but then the spring of course recoils and it brings back the 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 black disc back up so this is fun this is neat so i've got sort of i've invented more or less kind of a i guess a yo-yo not exactly because it's not there's no coil here. I mean, there's no, uh, there's no, um, nothing spinning on something else, but yeah, but I could, I mean, there are motors, there are, there are things like that. So this is a really cool, again, physics simulator, and it's a lot of fun to play around with. Would it be funner if I knew more about physics? Probably, like, probably i could do some really fascinating things here but i don't uh you, you like i say there are lots of different elements i'm just using disks because that seemed like a reasonable thing but there's there's boxes there's polygons you can draw stuff there are soft bodies uh, consisting of lots of you know an array of points to, uh, of your definition there are there's gas and uh, particles. Either I forget which was it was particles or gas. One of those two crashed the application when I tried it, um, which I found interesting and surprising because in Blender I've used particle simulation before and it didn't crash Blender. So something about maybe I don't know. Maybe the the number. No, it was gas. It was not particles because I just put a particle on and that did not look familiar to me. So there's a box of something. The area is uh, one meter squared by default. The particle count is 20. Now, I don't know if that means. If that's the seed, Uh, am I seeding 20 20 times, or is the total particle count never more than 20? I don't know. What if I knock that down to five? Concentration, let's do two per square meter. Particle mass is one kg. Actually, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to risk it, actually. I'm just going to cancel that, and I'm going to get rid of that, that, that box. So anyway, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do. If you know about physics, I'll bet it's probably even more interesting than it is to me. I find it fascinating. I find it a lot of fun. I had no idea it existed. And it's one of those, I wish... There were more, um, on, on, in many ways. I wish there were more. Um, in a way, I, I don't have, I, I have no use for it. I, no real use. But for a while there, a long time ago, I thought it would be really fun, really fascinating to emulate gears. And so I, I tried in Blender to manufacture a bunch of little gears, like spoked wheels. And I, I, I was trying to make it so that I could emulate, you know, so that you could put gears together and and watch them spin and and just sort of experiment around with, like, construction of things like that, a little bit like Technics, uh, Lego Technic, or Technique, however you say that, Um, and I just thought that might be fun, but um, I couldn't quite get all the things working in Blender so that You know, it was realistic. Um, Partly because I just didn't have the time to spend on it, but then also just probably because I didn't... I probably don't know enough about, like, physics and stuff. Um, And obviously, you know, if if you've got, like, a bigger gear turning a smaller gear... Well, I guess that's not really physics, though, is it? That's just properties of... Of, of it's almost geometry anyway I didn't get that far in blender and I, I kind of wish that was here in step maybe that's not physic enough maybe but um yeah I, i'm I'm fascinated by simple simulations of things I, I don't really need complex simulation honestly um, but simple things I, I just I find that uh, really fun ultimately my 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 main source of simulation I guess is uh railroad um what is it open ttd open um i don't know what that stands for what does open ttd stand for it's the railroad one it's the it's the, the open source little video game about um about transport tycoon deluxe no wonder i didn't know it uh open ttd it's a it's a transport tycoon deluxe apparently uh it's an old game but they they're still working on it now as an open source project and it's just a blast if you've never played it you should try it because you can set up uh, little um, railroad tracks and just make trains go around for ages. And it's just the, the most fun thing. Now, it is a game, so sometimes you you, you feel almost... Um, I don't know, I feel like... I, I wish there was a way where you could just turn off the game part, you know, and just have the simulation. Um I mean you can but you will get sort of you know angry messages as you play about all the things that you're not doing that you should be doing uh and and admittedly you you do start to get kind of distracted maybe and and maybe maybe you'll enjoy it like um picking up um picking up uh, ca- um cargo uh, what are they yeah I guess cargo uh, from one station and delivering it to another and then you can have you can do like Mail routes within towns. Uh, you can, you you build everything. You build roads. You build railroads. You build shipping lines, airports, all kinds of things. So it's a lot of fun. Um, it's it's yeah. It's Ttd dot org. Um, is that really a simulation? I guess not. But uh, it is. It's a heck of a lot of fun. So anyway, what was I talking about? Step right. Yeah. Step. Fun. Physics. Fun with physics. Try it out. It, it's a lot of fun if you if you are into just sort of messing around in a sandbox with with things that have an effect on other things. Step is something to look at. Next up, SVG part. Um, you probably can kind of guess from the from the name, SVG part is a KDE framework component that renders that 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 assists um rendering an svg in an application interface uh, meaning that you know maybe you want to use svgs for your icons in your application or maybe you are dealing with maybe you want your your user to be able to view an svg in in some in some viewer so that the svg part would would help you with that and it is a library it's a .so file called SVG part. It's located in Qt5 slash plugins slash KF5 for KDE framework. Five parts SVG part. There you go. Simple. Next up is Sweeper. Sweeper is an application that I've I think I, I tried to use it once. And then I just kind of kind of realized that I don't maybe really need it myself, personally. Um, but sweeper cleans up after you in lots of different ways that i I imagine some people would probably really really like this and appreciate it i i do not find it that useful for myself so you launch it it gives you a pretty much a, a a list of all the things it can do it does like a grand total of i don't know 12 15 things uh there's general and then there's web browsing general you can uh clear your clipboard contents clear your recent documents clear your run command history clear your recent applications clear your thumbnail cache clear cookies from your web browser uh so so that that was the general I guess so then, then the web browsing cookies favorite icons web history web cache uh form completion entries and cookie policies and that'll clear all kinds of I mean that'll you know if you if you say clean up then those things will be done and 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 then you can quit and that's it so that's, that's a thing that you can do. I, I don't need it myself. I mean, my computer is pretty much my computer. I haven't had someone in my office in I don't know how long. It just doesn't, it just doesn't matter to me. But I could, I could see this being useful maybe on a public computer or at work or at a computer that you just, you know, you just want to make sure you've cleared cleared your path. So Sweeper, it, it exists. Use it if you want it. Next up is Syndication. Uh, syndication is an RSS and Atom parser library. It supports RSS up to 2.0, but but down to like 0.9, or it says 0.9 slash 1.0, and I don't know what that really means, but whatever. And Atom 0.3 to 1.0 feeds. Um, so it is... It is the library for for parsing those kinds of feeds. Uh, it doesn't come with any binary executables. It's a bunch of include files. So if you're if you're writing an RSS feed reader, or something that needs to, you know, look at an RSS feed or an Atom feed or whatever, then syndication would be p- possibly something you would you would use to integrate into your application. I'm assuming, for instance, that Aggregator probably uses it. I don't know for sure, haven't looked, but I'm imagining like that would be sort of the obvious kind of use case i'm just going to try to get through the s's really uh we're very very close so there's syntax highlighting is next it is the this is an interesting one so it the slack description says that it's syntax highlighting for kate and that's true but it's it it doesn't quite encapsulate everything about it so i'm going to go to the var log packages uh listing of syntax highlighting dot uh, five, five dot nine zero and you'll see that there's an executable in user bin called kate-syntax-highlighter. And then there's some documentation, which I'll, I'll look at in a moment, actually. And then there's some include files, like some header files and things like that, and some cmake stuff, uh, and the library, libk And that's in the QML directory of Qt5, so that's kind of interesting. So a lot of, like, sort of interesting components here. What does it all add up to? Well, if we look in slash user doc syntax highlighting 5.90 blah uh, readme.md, there's uh, an eight chapter or eight section you know sort of introductory document here which is quite useful introduction this is a standalone implementation of the kate syntax highlighting engine it's mint as a building block for text editors as well as a simple highlighted text rendering system for uh for for instance html supporting both integration with a custom editor as well as a ready to use Q syntax highlighter subclass. Besides C API, um, a QML API is also provided. It says, out of scope, do not turn this into yet another text editor. The following things are considered out of scope. Code folding, beyond providing folding range information, auto-completion, spell-checking, user interface for configuration, and so on. So they really want this to just be a, 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 a the engine. They just want it to be the engine that you can use, you know, within certain use cases. And, and one of those is obviously if you're developing a QML application or something, and you want to turn on syntax highlighting, hey, you've got that available here, or C++, whatever. Now, there, there is that binary though in user bin, kate-syntax-highlighter. And if you invoke that on, for instance, a C file, let's just do it that way. And then I'm going to output, I'm going to redirect that output to my temporary directory here called, um, I don't know, sample.html. And now if I open that sample file in Firefox, it is beautifully, beautifully highlighted. Like it is, it is that C++ source file with all the nice highlighting that you could ever want. It is, it is legitimately really nice looking. Like it looks like I'm looking at a Kate window. You know, it just, that's, it it looks exactly spot on, which makes sense because it's deriving all that information from the Kate syntax highlighting engine. I could do that with um, you know, whatever kind of code really, like as long as Kate knows about it, uh, pretty much this knows about it. Here's a, here's a Java file redirect. If you, if you just let it, uh, go to your, um, oops. If you let it just go to your terminal, you'll see the, like the raw HTML. It's not, you know, you'll see all the markup and stuff. So it, you get to see it, but you don't get to like see it, see it. Um, but yeah, that's a really cool little application. I think i mean for somebody that's cool and and certainly if if i were to if i had a website where i was doing a lot of code blocks and needed something, you know, you don't want to use necessarily JavaScript uh, plugins and things like that to, or not plugins, but you know, you don't want to bring in a bunch of JavaScript dependencies just to highlight your code, or maybe, I don't know, So someone probably has a CSS uh, set out there, a set of rules out there, where you could probably just import that style sheet, and, and it probably has a bunch of different code block. Things I've never actually needed it, so I've never looked for it. But that maybe there is something like that. But if not, you could certainly integrate this script, Kate dash uh, syntax dash highlighting into your publication workflow, and you'd have you know uh, highlighted uh, code blocks. Then so that that seems like that could be useful too. Okay, last one is system settings. I mean, we've talked about system settings. This is not something that I really even need to describe or or discuss really because we all know it. We all love it. This is system settings. It is the KDE control panel. You go here for all of the things that you want to configure for your system, like for your entire system. Things like startup and shutdown uh, behavior, workspace behavior, window management, like what does it look like? Where are the buttons located? Shortcuts, keyboard shortcuts. You want to make some? You want to redefine some? Accessibility, App which applications are the default applications? KDE wallet, Network connections, your firewall, your multi, your your display, your multimedia settings, your audio settings, and all of those things are available in system settings as a as a one as a hub as one place that you can go to access those things. It's not the only place you can find them, of course, because of KCM, KDE configuration module modules. KCM is is the thing that. Takes an application and and in sort of embeds it, if you will, into the the window of System Settings. So, are you always going to open up System Settings for everything that you do? Maybe not. Maybe there's some stuff that you'll do just by launching basically what you would get from System Settings. It's a luxury. I have the KCM for my audio setup in my um, panel. Because I, I'm always switching inputs for you know whether I'm podcasting or doing a video call or like a, a voice chat or whether I'm just listening to music or watching a movie whatever I'm always switching the inputs and the outputs. I have two different three two two different microphones, two different headsets. I got some speakers. You know, it's just something that I'm doing all the time. So I got that. I I don't go to system settings for that. I just have just the audio the the audio configuration kcm thing in my panel and i click on it and it comes up and frankly i don't even need to do that if i didn't want to i could just hit my volume uh control thing here and it's got all the stuff that i need as well i just i've just gotten really used to the the kcm so system settings is great i love it i love having everything in one place like that and i love the fact that in kde that's not the only place it's not the it's not the one place that you have to go it's a it's a place that you are able to go to, to get access to a bunch of other things. And, and if you have to ask yourself, oh, where am I going to find that setting? Well, if you just said the word setting is probably in system settings. I mean, certainly that would be a place to try initially. So it's great. I can't really fault any computer operating system that I can remember for their settings, like for their their control panel, their their configuration, you know, whatever they call it on their, on their platform. This is just a, a fine operating system tradition that that seems to be pretty universal and thank goodness for it. I mean, can you imagine if there was like, if you had to click on, you know, like you could never get to a, a setting other than going by the exact thing, thing that you wanted to configure. I mean, that just seems like too much work sometimes. I just think a system settings makes sense. I'm always going to system settings. I think it's a great thing to get familiar with. And I think the KDE one works as exactly as you'd expect it. I mean, one of the nice things about it, which I think probably a lot of applications could learn from, is that there's a little search bar in the upper left corner. So maybe you don't know how to display, how to change your uh, monitor setting. Or is it a display setting? What do we call those things today? Well, we don't know. So let's just type in a monitor. Oh, display configuration. Yeah, that's probably what I want. Or did I think it was called display? Display. Oh, there it is again. Display, you know, so... It, it, there's a lot of like audio setups how do I audio there it is uh, okay well what about sound yep there it is again it's just called audio here because it knows that when I say sound it, that, that that's a keyword for audio so it's it's a great thing it's really really useful little search bar up there um, love it so anyway that's that's system settings I don't have a whole lot to say about it I just I just like it and I think those are good things to have and I'm glad that KDE plasma desktop uh, got that one right. Uh, I mean, it gets a lot of things right, but it's just—it's nice to see that System Settings is a great, comfortable place to go. I mean, I've raved about this before. I rave about it on Magia or um, Open Mandriva, You know, the control—the yeah, the Control Center. I just—I just think those things are really good. They're—they're they're useful. I like hubs on on a thing where it just makes sense. Like, let's let's go to this one place. Let's find all the stuff that we need, and then we don't have to think about it. And anyway, what I'm thinking about right now is a cup of coffee. So I'm going to go get one. You go get one. We'll come back and finish up the show. Coffee. Unfortunately, I only have coffee for me because I haven't figured out how to deliver coffee to my listeners yet, but in an efficient way. Anyway, I mean, technically, I, I understand how that could happen, but it's not going to happen efficiently. Um, so here's coffee, and here's Thread Weaver. Thread Weaver, I am completely not qualified to even comment on it. It is a it is a library to help with multi-threaded programming. It's a job-based interface to queue tasks and execute them in an efficient way. You divide the workload into jobs, state the dependencies between the jobs, and ThreadWeaver works out the most efficient way of dividing the work between threads within a, a set of resource limits. So these are a bunch of header files for 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 your your program, uh, for your C++ programs. user include KF five thread weaver. Well, from what I've heard, multi-threading is a really, really complex computer discipline. Like, it's not super simple to to do that to make that happen. So, I think if thread weaver helps with that, then great. That's really, really cool because multi-threading. I mean, it is really important. Like, like that's getting these computers to do more calculations faster. Uh, at this point, we seem to be at the point of of just throwing more cores at it and then we just hope that all the cores get used and and it does seem to be difficult certainly from a user perspective to get all those cores actually chugging away at at doing useful tasks and it's it's yeah it's an interesting problem to have of course you you run into all kinds of interesting race conditions and things like that in programming so it can it can where where two things try to finish a task and and if one finishes it earlier but the other one needed that task you know maybe it it needs the task that the other one's working on but it hasn't finished yet so yeah how do you how do you balance all that stuff out so threadweaver sounds amazing and not something that I'm going to be using anytime soon myself, at least not on a coding perspective. I mean, maybe I'm using it right now as we speak. I don't know. Okay, next up is Umbrello. This is a UML diagramming GUI. I thought we'd talked about this before, but maybe not. Um, I don't know a whole lot about UML. I've, I... I know that it's a thing. I know that people, you know, I, I it's a it's a term that I have heard people talk about and and um and, and and I think I've even seen UML before like in real life like actually being used. Like this this is why these components have to be organized in this way um it's a little bit like a flow chart if you've ever seen a flow chart which you probably have uh you know boxes connected by lines and and decisions being made or or uh control statements being made such that if you if this is true then such and such i, I don't think uml so much goes to the go, goes into the control conditions but i do believe that it it strongly is concerned with inheritance and things like that and and defining um, defining components that you have to work with or that you need in order to do something. So UML in theory I really really love and it is sort of a, a minor goal of mine to really understand like the the discipline of modeling modeling things in that way because I I really think that that's a, a really important concept that not everyone in life gets i feel like i had an okay introduction to that concept because uh my father had a really good i mean i think it was actually part of his job to, to sort of do uml essentially i mean i don't know if it was technically uml it was technically uh, an application called doors d o o r s and i don't know what that stands for and if i just look for doors um it's just a random allotment of of, of windows, uh, of, you know, of architectural, like literal architectural uh, dynamic object oriented requirements system. That's what doors stands for. So I think that that might be either a form of UML or, you know, close enough to UML to, um, to basically, to basically be UML. I mean, probably someone out there is saying to me right now, as I say this, <laughs> that there's no, you know, that UML is UML. But anyway, UML, I think is important because I think a lot of people don't get that kind of thing. And and like it has been, I think I've talked about this before, but I have met people who who have who encounter a problem and sort of just literally don't know where to start to solve it. And this goes back to what I was saying in the previous episode a little bit about how some you know sometimes people formulate these ridiculous from an outsider's perspective ridiculous notions of why a problem is happening i mean we've all done it we all do it sometimes you know and the less you know the the more prone to those kinds of wild theories i think you tend to be we've seen instances of this frighteningly in real life very very recently like people come up with like these just really crazy notions of like why something is the way that it is and you just think well like where are you getting this data from like why what kind of evidence would you have to make draw that conclusion and you know as we've seen a lot of people can find evidence to justify practically anything so i don't know i i like to think that that ideas like uml where you can create maybe a sequence of of events a, a sequence of things that need to happen in a, in a very specific order so that so that we can go from from here to there and 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 end up reliably in the same place each time and that's a skill that is a skill that not everyone gets i mean with the rise i guess of like video chat for instance i get to diagnose people's sound issues a lot a lot more than i would have anticipated in life and one thing that that you'll see people do you know they'll 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 be talking you'll tell them they're they're on mute maybe or i can't hear you probably the better the better complaint and then you know you might check your own system first well did i have sound before can i test the sound to ensure that that i'm i'm that I've got my output set correctly. And once you've established that as far as you can tell, your outputs are set correctly, you can hear other people on the call, but just not that one person. Okay, so the problem is probably on their end. First question, is the microphone plugged in? Like, that's a valid question because if it's an external headset or something, it might not be attached to the computer. That's a very, very low-level starting point, is is it plugged in. Not always relevant because sometimes they're they might be talking from a built-in microphone or something, but it's often a relevant question. Is it plugged in? Okay, if yes, then let's go to the next step, which would be, does your operating system know and report that that microphone is plugged in? How do I find that out? Well, you probably go to your system settings and look in your sound control panel. Just make sure that the thing is listed there. If it is listed there, is it marked as the input device? Okay, if that's yes, then we can move on to the local application. Whatever application you're running, whether it's a, a web browser or whatever, or a dedicated application, d- does that thing know that your microphone is plugged in and set as the input device, because sometimes the, the application that you're, that you're using does not, for whatever reason, respect the system setting. It has its own setting, and maybe the last time you were here, you were using a different input device, and so that application stubbornly believes that that's the device you should be using, and so on. That kind of logical progression of problems with as few dependencies as possible up to problems with lots of dependencies is a skill that a lot of people don't know. And you'll see that every time you go to a video call because someone's not going to have their sound said correctly. And those are the kind of questions that you have to ask. And I feel like that's the kind of logical structure that UML helps define. Not so much for sound, sound configuration, but that's the kind of problem-solving logic that I really, really like about UML. It's the... it's the... It's the aspect of this that intrigues me now. Umbrella and I guess UML in general. I, I again, I don't know enough about UML to really know. But in umbrella, for, uh, umbrella, for instance, you can you can create a thing. So for instance, here's a class. Uh, where did that one go? Here, nope, that's an object. Oh, is that? Is that a class? I guess that's a class. I thought I thought I saw something separate for classes. Maybe that's just the default thing that you create. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's an object, but they're they're calling it a class. It, once you get it into the interface, that's fine. I'm okay with that. I'm gonna double click on it. You can name it something, an instance name. So maybe this is you know that particular I don't know uh, microphone underscore one. And the, the class is going to be called microphone. We've got documentation we could in, input into here. So we've got maybe possibly a list of, you know, a, a document, um, documentation re- um, describing its expected behavior. We can set the style and the font and so on. Not going to bother with that, but I'll apply that. So I've got now sort of, I mean, really you're structuring or this application sort of treats it as uh, almost a little bit of a database. You know, you've got a lot of information in here that you can go back to and reference and possibly um point to um and refer to when you are actually implementing the thing that you have now planned out and that seems pretty darn useful to me um umbrella is rather strict in structure so it's a little bit different you know at at first glance you might think oh, it's just dia or draw.io um but it's not. It it isn't quite like that. It is a lot more structured than that, for better or for worse. And I I, th- I imagine there are probably definitely use cases for um for different you know when you might wanna when you might wanna use one over the other. And yeah, that's uh that's as much as I know about Umbrello. Uh, you can export it as a picture. You can export it in a bunch of different um formats like docbook xhtml so you can render it elsewhere or you can just use it within umbrella and like i say that could be your your reference point and your database of all of these different features or requirements or whatever it is you're mapping out they could live there pretty simple little application in a way but also um i don't know to me infinitely intriguing and i and i do hope to learn more about it and sort of understand it on a more formal level and, and maybe start using it myself okay next up is wacom tablet this is a control panel or, or a um a driver and control panel a gui dri- uh, control panel for wacom tablets github.com slash kde slash wacom tablet so when you go to system settings or can I just type in Wacom? I mean, speaking of, like, KCM, so oh, yeah, of course I can. Um, well, that's the Finder, though. Yeah, I don't want that. A graphic tablet, is that the one? No. Oh, that's because it's not. Okay. So I'm going to go to System Settings, I guess, and then go to, I think it's just in Input. Is that what it's called? Input? Graphic tablet. Oh, that's the... Okay, so I was looking at the right place. It's just that I literally don't have my Wacom tablet plugged in right now. So it's truthfully telling me that it doesn't have... You can't find a Wacom tablet. But um, I've definitely used this um, panel before with my Wacom tablet. I just have a cheap little Wacom tablet tablet. It's like a bamboo or something like that from ages ago, like probably, well, yeah, definitely 10 years ago. I got it right before I moved to New Zealand. So um, it's an old thing. It's, I, I I don't use it often, but when I do use it, I appreciate it because freehand drawing, well, freehand drawing is hard anyway, and, and certainly freehand drawing with a mouse can be very difficult. So Wacom tablets are kind of nice, for, you know, to give it that kind of freestyle sort of sketched look so getting the different properties of wacom tablets i mean a lot of times not always but a lot of times in my experience so far if you buy a tablet uh you know an input device like with a pen and a a little platform a little uh, page as it were that can be detected by a lot of linux distributions just as an input device and so you and and the problem is that you get very frequently, sort of a um, a binary kind of input. Either the pen is on the uh, paper, quote-unquote, or it is not. You know, it is either drawing or it is not. And and that's fine for a lot of uses like if if all you you're doing with it is uh, doing your digital signature or something it's probably perfectly acceptable now some confusingly some applications have some controls for that kind of stuff so so sometimes you'll get software intervention sort of helping you make your tablet look better although it doesn't even it it's, it doesn't know really what kind of tablet you have so I mean that's that's great. That's wonderful. I love that. But sometimes it can be confusing because you think, oh my gosh, it's it's just it just understands the tablet. and It does and it doesn't. It understands that you're giving it input. And then through software, it is deciding, because you've adjusted something, that it's only going to take a sample of what you're drawing every, I don't know, let's say, I don't know, every 5 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds or something like that, 100 milliseconds. And that has the effect of kind of smoothing uh, a line that you're drawing, because it doesn't have to worry about every little jiggly quiver that you make while you go from point A to point C. It's just going to go from A to B to C sort of really quick. It's not going to go to like A fraction, 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 B, fraction, 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 C. It just goes from A, B, C. There, done. We're, we've got a smooth-ish line. So that's kind of cool. But Wacom driver, uh, if you have a Wacom tablet, the, the Wacom driver gives you access to even more. And I mean, it's still through software, I guess, but it's not through that application. It's It's just the the way that your operating system is detecting what you're doing on your Wacom tablet. So you get things like pressure sensitivity. So if you've got a certain kind of brush that, you know, if you just kind of lightly trace your pen against the against the quote unquote paper, then you're getting just a little little bit of ink or a little bit of paint or whatever. But if you press down, then you're you're sort of it's almost as if you're applying more pressure to your brush or your 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 pen and you get darker lines, thicker lines maybe too. So that's kind of kind of neat to have, and it, it is just as simple as that. It's just installing, you know, it's ensuring that Wacom tablet is installed, which it is by default. Plug your Wacom tablet in, and then go into set system settings and and make some adjustments if you want. It's a pretty nice feature to have. I, I remember um, one time I was on a, uh, a a video call or something, and we the prompt had been it was for work, and the prompt had been it was like a um, like a social call, you know? And the prompt was to draw, I don't know, something, I forget what, or to write a word. And a lot of people had written the word, I think everyone had written the word on a piece of paper and take a photo of the piece of paper and posted it to the thing. And I had just, I just used my Wacom tablet and just illustrated it in Krita and posted that. And someone observed that it was a digital thing uh, and, and mused that, you know first how how funny it was that for me it was apparently easier to set up a Wacom tablet to to do this exercise than to draw it on paper and take a picture of it and upload it and and it and that was you know a funny moment and I appreciated the compliment to the the sort of the, the roundabout compliment that that I knew what I was doing with computers i guess um but in a way like sadly it wasn't <laughs> it's not that hard i mean this just on linux like you just You got the Wacom Wacom tablet driver, you just plug in your Wacom tablet and you just use it. It's like really, really easy, like shockingly easy. I'm sure there's exceptions. I'm sure there's a tablet out there that requires more setup or something. But yeah, for, for your everyday Wacom tablet, it's just really, really easy to do on Linux. So check that out. XDG Desktop Portal KDE. This is a backend implementation of the XDG Desktop Portal Using Qt and uh, KDE frameworks five. Deep Geek had actually coincidentally mentioned this in his email last week uh, because he he offhandedly mentioned a um a, com- a common complaint that I had, which is like, can we just please have one file chooser dialog on Linux? Can we just please implement that. And interestingly, for Flatpak, the XDG Desktop Portal uh, does enable that. So this um, this is a what they call a portal for a, you know something running in a container. So a portal allows you to dip out of a container for a moment and access something that that container would normally not have access to. It's kind of cool. Um, it's really useful. It, it does allow you to point it to a certain file chooser in some in some cases, I don't know exactly. You know, it's it's not exactly as configurable. I don't think uh, th- that it could be, but I mean, so it's not exactly it's not really exclusively for that. So it's, it's just access a folder. So, uh, for instance, if you, I, I'm pretty sure, no, that maybe that's the file system for- portal. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Um the portal interfaces include APIs for file access. No. Okay. So this is it opening URIs, printing and other things. Yeah. So if you're, if your flat pack is running in a container, then it doesn't know you have a printer. For instance, that's an easy target here. It doesn't know you have a printer, but with this XDG desktop portal, you can expose the fact that you have a printer to that, to that flat pack thing running in a container. It can get out from that container just to print or just to access your uh you know a specific folder like your download directory uh or 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 some other directory uh and you can add directories or or you know printers and you can add like permissions to certain things um you can do that at the yeah as an option in a terminal uh or the person designing the flat pack can hard code that into the flat pack as well uh so yeah that's x d. g xdg desktop portal dash kde getting really really close to the end of the kde section in slackware which is really exciting in fact we only have like three more to go so let's get through them yaquake y-a-k-u-a-k-e Yachtquake is really cool. I don't know why it's never caught on with me. It, it's, it feels like exactly the thing I want. I can't imagine why I don't use it. It is a drop down. It's a terminal that just drops down or drops up wherever you want it to be configured from your, from your screen. It is really cool. So in other words, you don't really ever have to have like a terminal open because it's always open. Yaquake just rolls down your screen. It's got tabbed interface. It can be you you can change it for you know the size and the color and it's basically console. But it, it it's it's a drop down terminal. Like I say, I don't know why I haven't caught on to it. What I really should do is force myself to use it for a while and really really get into it. I, I yeah I, I don't know why I don't use Yaquake. I should I should I should fix that. But if you have not used it, you should definitely check it out because like i say you don't have to have a terminal open it just drops down from the top of your screen and you can define what what um what inter what um what key you press for it maybe that's always been the thing like i i feel like i just don't know if i ever quite have decided on the optimal trigger button for instance f12 um apparently conflicts with something so what would I want? F one. Oh, I guess that would work actually. All right. So now if I oh, that is nice. Yeah, it just it just appears and it's like it's a terminal. I mean, just like you would expect. It's a it's a console terminal. It's right there. It's just so easy. I don't know why I'm not using this. So Yawquake, Yeah, you should try it. Apparently in in the in the game Quake there was some, some kind of terminal like thing that would drop down from the top of the screen or something. I don't think I've ever played Quake, but that's I believe the reason it's these these things are called like Ya Quake or, or, you know, other variations on that is because it was in a video game or something. It is really, really nice, really um, useful. So check that out if you've never tried it. All right, next up is Zanshin. It's a powerful yet simple application to manage your day-to-day actions. It helps you organize and reduce the cognitive pressure of what you have to do in your job and personal life. You'll never forget anything anymore. Getting your mind getting your mind like water. I don't know what that means. Zanshin's user interface lets you quickly see an overview of all of your daily tasks. So in spite of the name, uh, which, which doesn't sort of feel like a a name out of contact um this is a component of contact you know like there's contact there's there's kmail contact there's contacts there's calendar and then there's task lists is what it's called in within contact. That's actually Zanshin. Z- Zanshin. Z a n s h i n. Zanshin. Zanshin. Uh, so it and it's it's useful because it does. It's part of the KDE PIM suite. So it looks. It, you know, it sees all of the other things that you have within contact. It, it's looking at your calendars, your personal calendars, your your gaming calendar. Um, it sees all that stuff. So as you yeah, as you create new projects, they, you know, you can you can coordinate them with like, okay, well, when am I going to do this thing? Well, I'm going to do it on this day. And so that that'll appear in this calendar. And then when you go back up to your to your calendar component, those things exist. Th- those will be there. So, it's um it's pretty nice. And again, I think I as I've said before when I was using contact or or when I was talking about contact, I don't use half of of those applications as often as I probably should. Um, I just don't seem to operate that way, so I'm not going to force myself to try that sort of thing. It's nice to know that it's there. I could see myself in a in an alternate reality structuring things there. I just don't see myself doing that. I, I don't think that I quite live that strictly by by calendars and and sort of those you know like that kind of structure. I think I'm more of a a sprinter or a marathoner or both i 'm not sure but I, I don't i don't exactly have those specific things, although there are things that you know there are certainly things in my life that need to happen at a certain time, like meetings and things like that that I do go to so i don 't know maybe that would make sense but i I feel like project planning. Uh, for me is often uh, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to work on it until it's done, and then it's done. Um, and I'm not saying that's the best way to do things. It's just realistically that that tends to be how I how I do it. All right, zeroconf. This is the last one. Zeroconf dash io slave network monitor for zeroconf. A network monitor for. DNS SD services. ZeroConf is, in theory, to me, a very cool idea. Although, is it, though? So, originally, I didn't like the idea of ZeroConf slash Avahi, whatever. Uh, I'll get into the naming problem later. But uh, initially, I didn't love the idea. And I think, looking back, I think I didn't love the idea because I knew that I needed to to learn my network for myself before I let the network describe itself to me because it's very nice to to get a description of the network you know like here's everything on your network go for it that is it is very nice uh, objectively objectively it is nice for a computer to be able to just identify Itself describe itself like that's great, but it also you you do recognize, especially if you're if you're really concentrating and focusing on learning stuff, you do recognize that you are learning nothing from that interaction. I mean, you're learning the description of your network in this case, but I mean, you don't understand how that description was generated or discovered. DNS-SD is a is a proposal um, or, or a method by which it's a method described in a proposal, uh, RFC 6763, to describe how DNS um, service discovery, DNS SD service discovery, how that is uh, implemented. And I didn't read the whole thing, um, but it, it, it's it's essentially, I mean, it's, it's in record, you know, DNS has records, it's like, sort of like a database, um, and so it's just standardizing how dns services or how 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 devices how services on your network uh, identify themselves over dns and there's you know as long as we have a standard input then we can derive a lot of different output from that as we as we as we need and so that's what dns sd enables us to do and that's what zero conf leverages that's what it relies upon it says hey if you if you send me these messages in this format over the dns protocol then i can tell the user these these things about you and and the result is then that you know if you've got stuff on your network talking over dns then all of a sudden the idea of what ip address is that computer at well that doesn't matter anymore it doesn't need the ip address you or you don't need the ip address the device needs an ip address you don't need to know what it is because you got over dns the 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 casual common name of that device and that that common name notation is specified in in rfc six seven six three as uh, instance dot um, service dot domain or something like that i might have gotten that a little bit wrong but that's that's uh, instance service domain. No, that is correct. Instance dot service dot domain. Within local networks, very frequently, that is really just shortened to the service or you know the device uh, dot top level domain of dot local. So you might have a computer on your uh, network called. Uh, yorktown.local and another one called enterprise.local and now you've got two devices at some ip address each and they can talk to each other because they found out over dns service discovery that they exist and you can trace your way back over the network to that device based on what you know about its dns record so that's the idea of DNSSD and sort of of zero conf. Now, zero conf requires, first of all, that some system on your, some subsystem on your computer is thinking about that, is, is looking at DNS records and extracting that information and doing the, the homework required to sort of associate that back to some physical location on a, you know, on on a, in a network as, as made available by some kind of router or um, by a network. You need that. And then really you need to do, you need something, you need something to do with zero conf. And that's honestly the part where I kind of, fall over. I I don't know yet what I want to do with zero conf. And I don't even I don't feel like I 100% understand what I can do with it because I I just don't know how many applications I run that take advantage of of zero conf functionality. So, I'm not 100% yet sure what what you know, like I say, I like the idea of of my home network sort of identifying itself for me and kind of just making everything known on my network, just within my little bubble of a firewall, you know, behind the whole, the, the router, just, just so I can know that computer over there has a song that I want to play over here or something like that. Like, that, that seems like a useful concept to me. Or, oh, that computer in there... Uh, has a movie on it that my TV could then uh, watch, you know, I could watch it on my TV or something like that. And, you know, it's one of those things where uh, if it just all sort of happened that way, I guess it would be kind of maybe it would be then be useful but it's certainly not worth me I, right now I still don't feel like it's worth me investing my time or effort to make that happen so I mean it's by by definition it is a nice to have not a need to have obviously or else I would be implementing it and even even faced with the possibility that I could have it I'm not 100% sure what I would do with it and i know some systems out there like like if you if you go if you go all in on apple ecosystem which i don't advise you to do personally um do whatever you want you're your own person but i'm just saying i don't think i would do that if i were you whoever you might be dear listener uh, if you went all in on apple ecosystem then i understand that they leverage uh, their implementation of Zeroconf and Davahi and stuff like that, uh, which they call Bonjour, um, they they implement that fairly rigorously. Uh, so rigorously, in fact, that you sitting in a cafe, you will often see pop up on your, you know, whether you want them there or not, you'll see all the other Mac users in that cafe pop up somewhere in an application and you'll think, who is this person? Why Why do they have a MacBook? And why is it in my sidebar? So, I mean, it, it's it's a very, very rigorous thing that they do, and it's that kind of thing that does, admittedly, kind of like, uh, eh, do I really, is that really what I want in my life? And probably not. But, uh, again, at home, maybe that is what I want. Who knows? Um... But again, like why, why do I want it? So, I don't know. It it feels like if it's there, yeah, you probably end up finding a use for it, but in practice, I have never ever in my life used it and and I don't think I'm going to start using it now. That said, I'm going to tell you how you can at least get it to work on Slackware because zeroconf, although included in Slackware at least in in so far as this package called zeroconf dash ioslave slave that doesn't really work. So what that's supposed to do, as you as you probably re- recall from previous episodes, the io slave thing is an input output dbus kind of plugin that is supposed to make possible um, sort of communication over a protocol. It's supposed to uh, give you that that um, that capability. So for instance, if I were to open up dolphin and go into the little URI bar here, like the, the, wherever the path is and you click on it to make it editable or you have it always editable as I do and then type in zero conf colon, uh, colon then at least I'm getting an error that says K, the KDNSSD library has been built without zero conf support. So, the zero conf IO slave is not serving us well here. <laughs> that is not something that's useful to us if that's the response we get when we try to actually use it. So, a um, couple of things you need to do if you want this to start working. First of all, you need to install Avahi. Uh, I'm going to do an SBO find dash R Avahi. That is not an official slackware command it's just the thing that i've been using for slack builds lately you could use sbopkg as well it says is an implementation of the dns service discovery remember that's dns sd and multicast dns that's sometimes abbreviated mdns you'll you'll see that around specification four zero zero conf-, conf computing it was a it, it uses dbus for communication between user applications and a system daemon the daemon is used to coordinate application efforts in caching replies necessary to minimize traffic. Um, it's already found in Apple, Mac OS 10 branded rendezvous and bonjour, and sometimes Zero Conf and is very convenient. You need to have a Vahi user and group on the target system prior to it's installing uh, Vahi. Uh, see the readme.sbo package. Okay, so we're gonna need to look at the README file of the avahi uh, package that's fine i can do that where do i keep my slack builds oh yes slash usr slash sbo slash repo uh what where's avahi i don't know Uh, how about if i just do an asterisk (laughs) avahi and then what was it readme.sbo i think is what i saw readme.spo, but is it capital or lowercase? sb and then lowercase. Oh, got it. Okay, there we go. So it tells me in the readme file, first you have to have an Avahi user end group. Do this before you install Avahi. We recommend UID and GID of 214, but adjust that as needed. So... That's fine. That works for me. Slack builds has this sort of system, casual system, where if you're writing a Slack build script for wider distribution, you can contact the maintainers and ask for a a reserved number, a slot in in the user, the UID and GID, and they have a running list of all the ones that have been spoken for already. So Avahi was. Probably, I don't know, let's imagine the 14th one that did this because they got 214. And so you do a group add dash G214 Avahi and then user add dash U214 dash G214 dash C quote Avahi user close quote dash D slash dev slash null dash S slash bin, slash false, space Avahi. So you're creating a user, you're creating a group, you're giving them the ID of 214, and then you can install. So I'm going to do, um, oh wait, I can't install yet. So according to the info file of Avahi, it does require libdemon. Okay, well, I can install that first then. S-B-O install, or, um... For you it might be sbopkg install whatever you're using for your slack builds or you can just go to slackbuilds.org and download the slack build and do it all manually manually sbo install uh, lib demon oh it's already installed actually okay that's convenient and then sbo install avahi and that's actually already installed too but i'll pretend like it's not so it's pretend installing pretend installing and oh avahi uh, is now installed so it's that it's that simple right so we're going out to Slack builds and we're making up for the dependencies that Slackware doesn't bundle with, with you know, on the disk or, or in th- these days, you know, what, what's a disk on the ISO, on the website. All right. So once those are installed, we have the dependencies downloaded, but the error, if you'll recall, is that the in KN- the, the kdnssd library has been built without zero conf. kdnssd is not something like that's that's included in slackware so if i go to um i guess i could do a, a find on slash var slash log slash packages kdns oh well actually i don't really need to do that okay so Most slash var slash log slash packages slash kdns and then tab and then it auto completes it and so this is a thing I mean we probably have have we talked about this one I don't know if we have or not this might be in uh, in the library Um, no what am I talking about this was in KDE Um, so yes we've talked about this before kdns-sd, and um, this is just a bunch of like include files and things like that so this got compiled by Pat or Alien Bob or you know both probably realistically. And and distributed on the with Slackware, but it it got delivered to us. Here's the thing that really matters: us U, slash usr slash lib64 5 dnssdso5900 dot five dot nine zero dot zero. That got delivered to us and installed on the system without zeroconf support. So that means that. You've got to, if you want zeroconf, the the zeroconf.io dash io slave to work on your um, system, you have to re- recompile this library because otherwise, I mean, zeroconf wants this library. This library wants a Avahi. There's no, as far as I can tell, there's no other way to do this. Luckily, it's not really all that hard to do this. It, this is a pretty simple th- process. About a cu- cu- couple of steps, like 5 or 10 or, you know, 15 steps, but it's not it, it's not that much. So what you need to do if you want to do this is go to the Slackware repository, wherever you, wherever you go for that. I go to ftp.osuosl.org. Even though it says ftp at the beginning, it's actually not. It's http colon slash slash ftp.osu osl.org slash pub slash slackware from there you can go to you can find slackware 64-15.0 go into the source repository now for this for this podcast i've been going off of the the packages this is the source this is the source for all the packages so go into source and then go to in to kde and then bizarrely go into KDE again, and then look for src source, and then in source there's a couple of different things: applications, there's plasma, blah blah blah, there's frameworks, and that's what we want to go to. How did I know it was frameworks? Well, actually, I, for- I didn't. I didn't. I clicked around a bunch, but if you think about it, then you'll realize: well, this is clearly a frameworks issue because if you look in KNS K kdnssd you see that it's all over the kf5 is all over the place user include kf5 the library name itself was libkf5dnssd clearly kf5 kde framework 5 so it is fra- uh, k- it's the frameworks so once you're in frameworks then look for k just do a find kdns there it is, sd. And there's a tar.xed um, package, or, or archive rather, for 5.90.0. So this is exactly, we're just downloading what we've already installed. Well, what what Pat used to build the package that we already have installed. So I'm just going to go out to a terminal, wget that exact address. I mean, I, I didn't. I don't have to do that from the terminal. I could just click there and download it as well. It's just habit, I guess. Um... All right, so that downloads pretty quickly because it's just a little bit of source code. It's not that much. And then I'm going to unarchive it. So I'll just do a tar xvf kdns sd. That unarchives pretty quickly. And then I'm going to cd into that directory, into the unarchived directory. Okay, there I am. Uh, and now uh, I can do sort of the, the usual compiling code uh, compiling steps which is make directories so mkdir uh, b or i i just do b you can do build bld whatever i'll just do b make dir b and then semicolon c make dot dot semicolon make dash j 10 give it a lot of threads and then semi well and then we'll, we'll we'll pause there all right so we'll do that so that's just made a directory it's changed in oh i did that wrong all right one more time. Make dir b semicolon cd into b. So cd b, and then semicolon, and then cmake dot dot, and then make dash j 10. All right, there we go. Making the directory, and then it cds into it, and then it starts... It it, it does all the configuration, the cmake configuration, and then it, it, makes the, it makes the application. I'm seeing some warnings in the cmake about Avahi. Um... I wouldn't even say warnings, I'm just saying notifications. I see that it's mentioning Avahi, which kind of the first time that happened, I thought, uh, oh, maybe I don't have Avahi. Um, no, it's just like sort of for some reason it's quite verbose, and it tells you, hey, I'm going to use Avahi now. It's a quick, great, I, I don't need to know that as long as you just do it. Um, and then it is making it, doesn't take that long, depending on your system, I guess. And now we're going to do a make install dest dir, that's d e s. T D I R equals, and those are all capitals, destdir. It's a special um, variable that a lot of make scripts happen to use. So destdir equals, uh, I'm going to put it, let's say, in slash temp slash kdns sd dash 5.90.0 dash x86 underscore 64 dash 1 underscore gwo that creates that directory and installs everything that would normally be installed to your system from this package or from this source code package into that directory. And the reason I'm doing that is because now I'm going to cd into slash temp slash kdns blah 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 underscore gwo, And I'm going to execute the command. Uh, I'm going to do this as root. I'm going to do. do I have to do that as root? I don't think I have to do that as root. Never mind. I'm not going to do that as root. I'm going to do make pkg, oh, I do, because I don't, okay, so I'll do that as root, or with sudo if you have the root stuff added to your sudo path, um, because make pkg isn't, it's not going to be visible to a normal user, so uh, as root, make pkg dash cn dash ly, and then slash tmp dash or slash kdns sd dash nine dot blah blah the full name of the package again ending in dot txz so th- here's where i'm actually making the package i'm saying this folder looks good i would be happy for this folder to exist on my wider system but first i want you slackware to zip it up into a little archive and that way i have it in a format that All the Slackware packaging tools appreciates So I've just done that. And now, finally, last but not least, I can do sudo upgrade pkg slash tmp slash kdns sd asterisk gwo asterisk txz. Now I'm using gwo because in real life I don't. I actually use SMI for slackermedia.info because it's just a, a method of tagging things. And you, you, your personal tag can be anything. Um, I think Slackware doesn't use a tag, but SlackBuilds.org does. It always it it always has at the end of a package name underscore S B and then little o. And so you could make your personal packages like mypkg or you know, my slack or, or whatever you want, like what, you know, your underscore, um, your username or, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. But as long as you're consistent and that way you already, you always know, like when you're looking through your packages, you're like, where did that package? From? Oh, well it's, it's tagged with my tag. So that's where it came from. There's always, there's other use for, uses for tags as well. Cause you can tell during install time slackware to like install certain tagged packages and things like that so th- there are other uses um but it's just a useful thing so i've just upgraded kdns sd with the custom compiled one with avahi compiled in now we have to start the avahi daemon, which is sudo chamad. well first i'm going to enable it as it were. And that's going to be uh, pseudo chmod plus x slash etsy slash rc dot d slash rc avahi daemon. And then pseudo slash etsy rc dot d slash rc dot avahi daemon. That starts it right there. No, oh, <laughs> space start. So, pseudo slash etsy slash rc dot d slash rc dot avahi daemon space start. That starts it. Now on on upon reboot, because I've enabled it, I've I've made it executable, Slackware will execute that script. You know, so Avahi will always be running now when I reboot. If you don't want that to happen, that's okay. You can just do sudo space s h space slash etc slash rc dot d slash rc dot Avahi daemon start. And that way you're just you're you're starting it one time by starting it in a sub shell, essentially. And and now you know now it would be running, but when you reboot it's not gonna start up automatically. So there's no right or wrong way, it's just expectation. Do you want it to automatically start or not? If not just run it once. If so, then do the Chamod first. Okay, so... Um, or do the Chamod at some time before you reboot, basically. It doesn't have to be first. Um, okay, so now Avahi Daemon is running. I've got the SD library recompiled and upgraded to include Avahi. So if I open up Dolphin and type in 0conf colon, uh, it doesn't give me an error. And that's as far as I've gotten. I don't know what to do with it now. I really don't. I do not know what to do with 0conf. I... I just don't have a use for it. Realistically, I really don't. So um, I'm not sure what I will do with this now that it is working. Realistically, probably nothing. But if if you have a use for it in your own life and you think, yep, ZeroConf is what I want on my computers, then that's those are the steps you need to go through uh, to get to get at least KDE working. You know, sort of recognizing the ZeroConf um, protocol bundled with slackware you you need to go to slack builds you need to get avahi and lib demon and then after you do that of course you need to start the avahi demon itself and also you need to upgrade kdns sd with avahi support i don't know if that's useful because like i say i don't have a, a use case for it but as i said if you do now you know how you can make it work for yourself. Hopefully that helps. I did start, I, I started and resolved a thread about this on linuxquestions.org. The thread got very much off track very quickly. People had a very long discussion about sort of like, I don't know, I'm not even sure what the discussion was about, to be honest. It, it was a. It i I'm sure it's a very interesting discussion. It just got way off track. I did not mean for that discussion to to go in that direction. I thought that the discussion would be about why, slackware was shipping a a library or a a component that wasn't that could not function as bundled like that was my point like hey this zero conf dash slave is being installed is being bundled in slackware but when you try to use it it fails because you have to recompile a support library with libraries that aren't included in slackware and a, f- a few people or maybe one person noted that sometimes slackware does that they they include the some of the components uh, for you to work with, but but there's setup required. Um, I, I I don't feel like this is just setup required. This is like you have to go back and undo a thing that was installed in Slackware and and you know kind of bundle it in yourself. So I, I don't think that's quote unquote setup. I, I think that's different. I would probably personally like if if Pat were to ask me, I would probably move zeroconf dash io slave into the extras directory even though it obviously like sort of belongs with kde and so on i just i i don't think that that makes sense to have it in the in the main distribution to me i would i would have it in extras so that people understood hey if you want the, to implement this you can here's the source code so you don't have to go find it in you know kde's GitLab. Um, however you do need to recompile a core library that has shipped and installed with slackware to get this to work so that's what I would do personally but you know I don't know I haven't discussed this outside of posting a I guess a bug about it on Linux questions I haven't like I haven't called up Pat you know because I don't have his number um I don't haven't called anyone and said hey like let's let's talk about this like that's yeah I'm just just a random person on the internet noticing things so I don't know Actually update, um, this is, I'm recording this days later, but uh, I just noticed that on the thread in linuxquestions.org, uh, I, I marked it as as solved, which you should do if you're using linuxquestions.org when you solve a, a thread. Mark it solved, because that way people know that there's a solution here. So at the end of this thread, I put the solution that I've just described to you here on the show. I'll, I'll include the link to the show notes just so you have, uh, you know, kind of as a way of 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 reading what I just said, um, but that thread was marked as helpful by four users today, um, and one of those users is Pat Volkerding, the maintainer of Slackware, the founder and maintainer of Slackware. So um, this solution has been seen by Pat. Actually, I didn't call him up, but. He, I broadcasted it in a space where he is known to uh, check, and he, he has seen that. So whether that, um, you know, changes how 0conf-io-slave uh, is, is uh is dealt with in the future m- m- who knows maybe maybe that'll maybe this will change uh the way that that's handled or, or not i mean it could just be that that's fair play like zero cons dash ioslave slave doesn't can't work without recompiling a core library and that's fine like that's you know, as long as as long as it's known, I guess it's fine. I think I would I would probably make it known, uh, I, personally, because I mean, otherwise it just seems broken, right? Someone sees oh zero conf, oh it's included, oh that's great. It's not working. Oh, it's not working. That doesn't seem like a user error. That seems like a distribution error at that point. So I think I think a little clarity there could probably be be good. But we'll see what happens. Who knows? Fifteen point one could could feature. um exciting zero-conf developments. Anyway, like I say, I don't even know what I'm going to do with zero-conf. So I've, who knows? Like, do I care? Not really. I'm probably still not going to use it. But like I said, I do like it in theory. Maybe one day I'll figure out what I want to do with it and actually do something with it. But for now, thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you in next week. You can tell us what's the matter.